Morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If, you're, if it's your first Sunday or maybe second or third, if you're a, a visitor, welcome to our church. Glad to have you here, as uh, Mark and, and Ellen were saying earlier. Welcome to those on Facebook watching as well. Uh, we love you guys and miss you and, and hope you're well. Um, we're going to dive right in today to our next big question, which we're doing this summer. If you're just joining us, we are preaching through questions the church has given us as pastors Uh, So a chance for us to preach topically and to address some questions that we know uh, at least some of you guys uh, really have on your minds and hearts right now. And I'm guessing uh, these uh, kind of go out to many of you as well. You've probably asked these questions at some point in your life if you aren't uh, currently. So hopefully uh, very relevant in in a lot of ways. And they certainly are. Uh, These are opportunities for us not just to answer questions, but to see how the gospel answers these questions, how the gospel is itself. The good news of Christ's death and resurrection is uh, sufficient how it's sort of in the questions, kind of the subterranean undercurrents, uh, in a way, to these questions, uh, how they all relate to Christ. Uh, and so we'll get to some of those touch points a little later on. Uh, but uh, without uh, any further ado, we'll dive right in here to our question today. First of all, the topic has to do with interposing days and the practice of waiting in the Christian life. The question we got, which is part of a, a larger email, uh, I'll just read this uh, just uh, for space here and, and to kind of drill into it a bit, but this is um, an excerpt. The question, which is a great one, uh, was, or is, the interposing days and the waiting the psalmists talk about is a hard topic. I know the end of the story, it's glorious for believers, and Jesus has already won the battle, and I have comfort in that, but it makes me just wish we would all die soon and that we wouldn't have to go through the waiting times. It may sound depressing, and I'm, I'm not suicidal, I'm just saying when I really think about it, then what is the point of these interposing days? So interposing meaning uh, the, the days in between, the days that just feel like they're stuck between us and God and seeing his face, that kind of idea. So um, why so many of them uh, is uh, the ultimate question. Why is there so many, so many days in between us and the second coming of Jesus? What, what's he waiting for? And just that the process of waiting itself seems like uh, a difficult, difficult thing. So how do we uh, wrestle with that in the Psalms and in Christian daily living and practice? All right, so great question. Uh, in, in one sense, of course, this is kind of unanswerable. Uh, we don't know why salvation history has been as long as it has. We don't know why God has, has chosen thousands of years versus several years for the time period between Adam and Eve and the, the advent of sin and rebellion against God and the crucifixion of Jesus, which solves and fixes that problem and brings sinners back to him. We don't know why it's been so long or why it was so long um, between those two events. We don't know why Jesus suffered for six hours on the cross rather than five minutes. kind of relates to this as well. And we don't know the dates and times of the second coming of Christ other than it will happen because Jesus said it would and he never lies. And so pastorally then, uh, for all of us, when someone asks a question like this, there is a time just to put our hand on their shoulder and say, I don't know. That, that's um, actually not just okay, but kind of good to do sometimes when we talk theology or seek to defend uh, the Christian faith in a way apologetically, um, uh, kind of with others and, and so forth, and wrestle with these things. Uh, there's a time to say, I don't know, and because we're not God, and that's kind of the whole point. He knows things we don't. There's many things that stay a mystery and may, and may forever. That's also a good thing. Um, the, the, the point of the Christian faith is not to figure out all the answers, but to believe that the ultimate answer, Christ, came to us to reveal things about God and things about us that we need to know in order uh, to um, find joy and ultimately be saved, things that he just wants to tell us and share with us. So um, 
So with that said, there's a, there's a time for us to just sort of acknowledge this, to put a hand on someone's shoulder and say, I don't know, but we, we do know this. We know that Jesus empathizes with us. We know that he himself, even as the Son of God, experienced these types of things. He experienced interposing days. He experienced interposition. He experienced separation from his Father for us and ultimately death for us on the cross. So we know that our Savior is an empathizer. He became human. He is not someone who just kind of like speaks to these things or has the answers but can't feel them. We, we, we serve, believe in, and read about a, a God who came into our world to bear the mess, uh, including, um, including interposition. So with this said, I, I think that these types of, um, I'll call it like a resigning response. So in one sense, we kind of resign ourselves uh, to these types of things. I think that type of response actually does lead us to some good things, just practically speaking, in life. Things like prayer. When we wait, experience interposition, it leads us or can lead us to prayer, to crying out to God. It leads us to dependence. It leads us to thankfulness for what we do have. An opportunity to trust God in the midst of the haze. And the belief that the gospel truly is sufficient. The belief and kind of the, uh, the heartfelt practice of applying that to the heart on a day-to-day basis, so that can be very difficult. These are good things. They're good for the soul. They're glorifying to God when we do them, and at the end of the day, the right way uh, to, to live. And so suffering, interposition, and waiting leads to good, pruning, refining things for the soul that wouldn't otherwise be there. Uh, this is partly why I think the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7, sorrow is better than laughter. Because a sad face is good for the heart. I think what's meant here is that sadness can sometimes lead us to God more than comfort and laughter. And and also why Jesus says something similar in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Their sadness will be followed up by something more glorious. A solution. And in in that day, it will be all the sweeter for having gone through the mourning. And later in the, in the Gospels, I think it's in Luke 6, Jesus, uh, there's another version of these Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, where there he says, woe to those who laugh. So blessed are those who mourn, but woe to those who laugh. Be warned if you're laughing a lot. Be, be warned if you're comfortable in life because you might already have your consolation. You might have your reward. That might be the best thing. So the idea there is that laughter can keep us away from God sometimes because why would we need him if things were going so well for us? Think about it this way. Too much laughter can make us forget we're sinners. Suffering, however, doesn't let us forget so easily. And I know for me, I've wondered at times in my life if a perfectly healthy me or Chris Wachter would have ever become a Christian Uh, So like chronic things, like chronic migraines, things I've suffered with and still do. Um, If I didn't have those, um, you know, what I have. It's kind of a weird question. I know weird hypothetical, but I have thought this a lot in life. Obviously, God's in control of all of our salvation and overcomes all of our things, whether it's suffering or comforts, obstacles, and softens our heart to save him. But I've still wondered this, like what would I I have? Or to put it this way, I kind of get scared when I think about a perfectly healthy, you know, self-sufficient, um, all the more arrogant than I am right now, though I am, we all are, right? I am too now, but all the more arrogant than I am now type individual, like version of me, uh, kind of scares me because of uh, 
the hardness of heart that I perceived there and, and also wondered if too much laughter um, would have been um, problematic. So I think this is part of, part of the answer. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm talking like initially here. We're going to be for here in a second. But I think there are initial remarks that can be made about this that the Bible does speak to a little bit. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, fully, they're not full answers in the sense that, oh, yeah, there it is. You know, now I have no more questions, right? Like these are, these are still, they're still, they, they lead to more questions in some ways, but there's still things that initially can and, and should be said. So the, the last initial remark here is, is to say, uh, and another layer to this would be to say that by experience, uh, I think we all know that waiting makes the thing waited for all the sweeter when we receive it. That's hardly ever not true. So, in other words, if there was no night, there would never be such thing as a sunrise. We'd never have a beautiful sunrise, ever. Um, if, there's, if a song had no verses or no bridge, there'd be no such thing as a chorus. There'd never be a chorus in a song. If there was no Christmas Eve, there'd be no such thing as Christmas. You can't have Christmas without an Eve. You can't have a thing that precedes it to lead up to it. This is, like, this is like philosophically we'd say this, right? But I think also by experience and as Scripture attests to it as well, these things are important to remember. Even, so even though those things are all preparatory, they're good because they point to and make more glorious the better things that follow them. As Sam says in Lord of the Rings uh, to, to Frodo towards the end of the story, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Key phrase there is the last few words, it will shine out the clearer because the darkness came before it. All right, so digging a little bit deeper then, I think, again, these are important initial things to understand. There are things we can kind of hang our hat on. They're true. But digging deeper as we continue to circle around the, as if this question were a diamond with many facets and as opposed to like fully answering because we just can't, it's too deep. We can walk around it though and look at it from different angles. We can see it from a different facet. And we can learn more. And so as we dig deeper, as we, as we circle the question and look at it from different angles, one thing I think that really helps us is when we put more of the answer on God than on us. So meaning when we ask the question, why these interposing days, the better answers have to do with God than us. Not that there are answers that pertain to us. We've talked about those and those can be good, but the better, more fulfilling in some ways, just more satisfying answers, even if they don't satisfy, the more truer answers have to do with God and what he's like and what he's intending in the world and in our lives more than starting with our comfort as if that's something we deserve or our waiting as if we shouldn't have to wait for things in life, right? Like that, if we start with that, if, the, if that's the obstacle, we trip up a lot more. But if the ultimate answer has to do with God and what he's like, what he wants, uh, it starts to make a, a little more sense. So, so here's what I mean. I have three things today as we dig deeper. Again, if we ask the question, why all the waiting? How do you wrestle with waiting and wait well? Why is that a thing for, for Christians, for people? 
And why these interposing days? Why has it been 2,000 years uh, since Jesus ascended and um, left the earth and sent his spirit uh, to, uh, to birth the church? Uh, why, why so long? The first answer has to do with God and his characteristic of patience. So one answer is, God, the reason is, these interposing days, the reason is God is desiring to save more people. That's why. The Bible says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count the fact that he's patient with us and not bringing the day of judgment too quickly as an opportunity for more people to be saved, for more people to share in Christ, to be shared with by God, to be saved from their sins, and to have the hope of eternal life. Consider it a window into his greater plan and intention to save us all to save his church, to grow his church, to save more people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So on a more personal level, then, I think this is interesting because this is written to Christians, this uh, verse in 2 Peter. It's not written to people who are, who are yet to be saved, though it, it certainly applies to them as well. This is written to Christians to say, I, we should, if you're a Christian here today, we should count the patience of God every day as we see it as a picture of salvation. It should tell us something about God's posture towards us, right? So on a personal level, when we, Christian or not, experience evil or do wrong, whether we see it in the world or whether it's right here in our chest, right here in our hands or eyes, when we, when we do it, when we go our own way, when we do what's wrong or hurt others, when we walk, or walk away from the Lord, and God doesn't return in that very moment to crush us, what the Bible is saying is, let that remind you that he's patient with you. That instead he planned to crush his son in your place. As we just read from Isaiah 53, in that same context, it talks about how God intended to send his son into the world to experience the burden, to bear the debt, to pay the debt, and to bear um, the, the wrath of God in our place. And the son willingly obliged. We talked about this last week from Philippians 2 in love for us, willingly went in obedience to die on a cross for us, to be crushed so we won't be. So that, and this is from Romans 3, in his divine forbearance or patience, he is now passing over our sins because of that forgiveness that he was ushering in through his son's shed blood. So you know that's like the ultimate expression of patience. Like we, we don't just as Christians say God is patient generally, though it's true. The way he showed that patience is by sending his son to come and not to, not to bring judgment with him with his first advent and arrival, but to come humble, to become like a human, to, to come into the world to be a man of sorrows, to come into the world to, to be pinned to a tree and to be cursed in that way on the cross. So he would be punished and, and not us. All, all this, every day we should, we should think that when we... Know that wrong is happening all around us every day and, and right here in our, in our bodies and minds. And yet God is not coming back to bring judgment yet. Like he's being patient. That should remind us of Christ. So we can tend to think in workspace terms, right? Like whether we're Christian or not. Like, well, that was one more stupid thing I did, but hopefully I, I did more good to balance it out. I guess I'll find out when I die. Uh, that, that is just not a Christian way to think. It's not a great grace-centered way. It's not a Jesus-centered way. Instead, we should think, 
It's by grace that I'm saved, and it's by grace that I breathe right now, especially after I sin, which is all the time. His patience with me reminds me that there is hope. That my sin and your sin is not the final word. Christ is the final word. Christ on the cross is the final word. And that punishment's been laid on him in in my place. I, I think why this is so important is because it takes our thoughts off of ourselves and circumstances and puts it more on him, which is always a good thing for us. Wherever you guys are coming from, whatever you're bringing into the room, thinking about yourself won't make you as happy. It won't lift you. But thinking about Christ will. And so even when we talk about things like this that are difficult, difficult to wrestle with and answer, um, if the answer is just constantly orbiting around us, um, it's not a good thing. Not, Not a good thing based on truth, and not a good thing based on, based on experience. The second piece is God's glory. So why the interposing days, uh, the Bible uh, speaks to this and says, well, actually, it's because of God's fame and his glory. So these days, the days in between, create more opportunity for God to get fame and to show his power. We need to remember this. And, and remember that interposing days doesn't mean no significance, you know, we're not asked to hold our breath as Christians until Jesus comes back. We're experiencing good things all the time, right? We're experiencing God's inbreaking kingdom now. We're watching him make all things new, starting with our dead human hearts. We're having life to the full, Jesus says in John 10, now, the Spirit's here now. So Jesus didn't just bungee cord back up to heaven uh, in Acts 2 or Acts 1. He, he sent his Spirit, he's here with us. The kingdom of God is breaking in. It's it's coming against the darkness all the time. And so, again, we're not asked to hold our breath in that sense and wait. We're asked to experience him now as we wait for final consummation. There's a difference there. But to speak to today's big question, suffering and waiting also play a part in the the story of God's glory as well. A couple of just um, quick examples of this. There are many. One is from Romans 9 where it says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is speaking about the Exodus story in the Old Testament at the beginning of the Bible, the scripture says to Pharaoh, God speaking, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I, God, might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, what makes this tricky is that Pharaoh's not a good person. So this is not a verse that's saying God raised up a very good person to show his glory, but God raised up a very, very evil person that even brought harm upon Israel, harm upon his people, so that he might be the one to overcome the problem and and that way show his power. So it's one of those verses that that reminds us God is not just the, the bringer of good and over the good, but he's also over evil. Not the source of evil, but sovereign over it and using it to make good things out of it to bring greater good out of the evil. This is clearly a testimony, a partial testimony to that greater idea, which we can't fully understand again, but it's still very, very, very true and important for us to understand as people who experience evil and suffering in the world. Another place you see this is in John 9, 1 to 7, one of Jesus' miracles. Let me just read this here. It's an abridged version here, um, but let me read it in full and we'll come back. In John 9, it says, And as he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, 
that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. All right, a couple quick things here. I'm not going to preach this whole passage uh, today. There's a lot more going on than what I'm about to say, but a couple of quick things. First, note the basic idea and principle here, kind of in the spirit of today's big question, that our lives aren't ultimately for us. You guys see that? Our lives are not ultimately for us. We're not the main character, the main figure, and the things that happen to us or around us or in us aren't ultimately for us. They're for him. They're for God. We exist for his sake. Our lives and the circumstances of our lives are all for him. Whether we live or die, whether we suffer or experience comfort. All right, the second thing is brokenness exists so that God might be glorified in fixing it. So this is related, of course, but brokenness exists so that, Jesus is very clear here, this happened so that the works of God might be shown. It's an opportunity for God to work and do something good and for him to become famous and glorious through it for the sake of unjoyful, sad people, for our, our spirits to be lifted, for us to see something and say, wow, I've never seen that before, or look what God did, and to worship and to thank and to be drawn into that same story. All of, many of Christ's miracles, not all, uh, but most of them were done in public. And so people who weren't a part of the miracle could still say, I want to know the one who did the miracle. I, I want to follow him. I want to be around him when he does it again. I want you ultimately, though they weren't thinking this in the moment, follow him to Jerusalem where he would ultimately die for me and perform the greatest of miracles, which is to raid hell and bring out people from there to be his sons and daughters. And that's kind of what's going on here. Again, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here with this passage, but the ultimate thing Jesus fixes in the Bible is sin. It's not blindness. He doesn't heal everybody physically, but he does offer, on a much more cosmic, for-the-nations level, dies for spiritual blindness. This is what the Bible teaches. So the ultimate broken thing, the ultimate thing he came to fix and address and heal is sin. He does this at the cross. This is important to see. It's actually why, oddly, Jesus uses his saliva here to make mud and to heal this guy's eyes so they could see again. It's very odd, right? It's the only time Jesus does this where he spits in the ground, mixes it up a little bit, and then pastes it on people's uh, eyelids and then says, go and, and wash, in the, wash in the pool of, of Siloam. Have you ever wondered why he does this? It's, it's kind of like a second big question for today. So we have the question of interposition and then the, underneath that the question of what in the world's going on here? Uh, with Jesus making a, um, a spit mud ball and then putting it on someone's eyes. Well, what's happening is uh, Jesus is doing this. He's healing in this way to show us how some of his bodily fluids were used to heal. That's important. Jesus' bodily fluids, stuff from his actual body, is being used as a way to heal. We know he doesn't have to do this, right? Right? 
Other times he just heals by saying, be healed from afar. He calls out across a room or across a city and says, your son is well, your daughter is well, uh, you're healed, right? So he doesn't have to do this. So what's he saying with the theology? What he's saying is, my body is going to be the ultimate thing that heals. My actual physical body, my bodily fluids are going to heal. So this points us ahead, right, to the time where not his saliva, but another bodily fluid would heal, that being his blood and his saliva, which spit out from the cross too when he was crying out to God and saying things, right? Surely he spit from the cross when he was crying out, screaming out for breath and crying out to his father right before he died. But it was especially the bodily fluid of his blood that heals. And that's why these stories exist. That's why he heals in these weird ways. He didn't have to. But so that we would see that it's not his teachings, it's not anything like that that ultimately heals and saves and forgives, but he came to ultimately spill his bodily fluids for us so that we would be saved from our spiritual blindness. So, so here, here's what I mean, coming back to the question a bit. Interposition exists for this, for small acts of grace that anticipate the greatest act of grace of all time. It, again, if we try to answer this question with our comfortable lives at the center and the notion that our lives belong to us, we'll trip over it and it, it'll be a lot harder to answer. But what's real here? is time exists for God, not for us. Though we clearly benefit from it, like the blind man benefited from the inter interposing days, he benefited uh, from how God used the interposing days to show his power and glory, we benefit. It's ultimately not for our sake, though. It's so that the works of God might be shown. And, and we are part of that same story, guys. Like this, When we see this, that blind guy... He was just like us. We're not that different. We're just like him in our humanity, in our fallenness. And the, the, story, the story goes that, that he intended to heal and show his power, um, but it's for his sake, not ours, that we have these maladies sometimes. All right? The last uh, touch point here is God's grace. So why these interposing days? Uh, why specifically here waiting? Why is that a thing? Uh, has to do with the principle of God's grace or undeserved merit and how it kind of butts up to, uh, to that idea. Waiting is a gospel issue because it puts us in the passive role and God in the active role. So it's, it's like if I'm waiting for an Amazon package to come that I, ordered some, that I ordered last week, there's nothing I can do but wait on the deliverers right? And on their time. There's nothing any of you can do when you order something. You're just waiting. You're in the passive role. It's the same with us and God. It's significant that the Bible never says that ever that God waits for us, that he's waiting for us to come to him or waiting for us to get our lives together because that would imply that it's works that saves us. It would imply that He's waiting for us to do enough good or to abstain from enough evil in order, to, um, in order to be saved. But it does say over and over again that God, or that we wait on God. Because that's another way to say there's no way to be saved apart from Him doing something for us. 
We wait for salvation. We wait for it like a package on our doorstep. Uh, it's actually a very, like I kind of got at before, it's a very Christmassy idea. So, like, we can't control the spread of the calendar at Christmas time. We also can't control salvation. It's completely and in every way apart from our works and our choices and our abilities. That's really important to see. The practice of waiting, the call to wait, is another way of saying saved by grace, saved by God choosing to show up in the world and saving us on his accord by the works of his hands, not by the works of ours. This is why no one was at the manger or the cross saying, I knew it. I told you it was going to happen on this day at this very moment. I knew it was going to be a Friday. No one was there. No one had it figured out because, again, the whole point of the story is to say God chooses to show up when he wants so that we're not fooled into thinking that we save ourselves. Does that make sense? This is why it's important to be waiters on him. And it's important why God is never shown to be a waiter on us, though other religions might position him in that light. Christianity never does. So Psalm 41 to 2 is one of these psalms that that talks in waiting terms. It says in the first couple of verses, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So I would say to, to people who have this question, to any of us, not just the person who asked it, but like, when you read a psalm like this, these are good things to pray. If you struggle with what to pray, pray the words of the psalms who, who are, uh, in many cases, sufferers like us and waiters on God, waiting for salvation, waiting for resolution, waiting for an answer, waiting for something to go away. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. And so, I would, I would say that in answer to the question, but I would also say that these are our words in the sense that all we do is cry out. Notice here, God does the lifting, the traveling, the resurrecting, the saving, and he places us upon not just a rock, but the rock of Christ. In the Bible, there are, many, there are many rocks, but they ultimately tell the story of the one rock. It's like in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, if you listen to me and my words, you are like a house built on a rock. Not shifting sand, but a rock. But in, in that little parable-like picture, he's the rock. The rock is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4 says. So the idea is that when you build your house, when your, your life gets built on the fact that Jesus died for you and you can't save yourself, you can't build the foundation. When you build, your, when you build your house on that rock, he's the one that takes the beating from the waves. He gets hit hard on the cross, but our house still stays standing. So in this psalm, we see a man waiting, crying out, God hearing, God lifting up and setting that person onto Jesus, onto Christ, so he might be saved. And so, again, in that sense, I think that these psalms are, are our words. But in another sense, as you twist it a little bit around, these are also Christ's words. The second David, David was the one who wrote this, but Jesus was his, was his descendant, who fulfilled these ideas. 
these words kind of become Christ as well, so that we can affirm that the way that God answers our cries is by sending his own son to cry out on the cross. Like in Matthew 27, where it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice right before he died and then was raised up three days later, like the psalmist talks about being lifted up out of the mud and mire here. It's a, it's a death and resurrection passage, actually. Psalm 40 is. It's a prophecy. So Jesus is a crier. Uh, he cries, not just because, not because he's weak. He's not weak, but because he's fully human. He cries over our pain, like when he sees a, like, um, the, the uh, dead, I'm forgetting who it was exactly, but the dead girl in the Gospels, uh, or Lazarus, he weeps. When he sees death, his heart breaks. He feels, right? He's fully human. So in, in Christ, we have this picture of a God who empathizes and weeps over our pain, but he doesn't stop there because that's just sentiment. He actually can stop our tears as well. And the way he does that is by crying in our place, by crying out, to, by fulfilling this psalm. He's the one who waited on God to perfectly time his crucifixion. He's the one who waited on the third day for God to raise him from the dead. He's the one who waited in the garden before all of that happened when he prayed in Gethsemane. And so I feel like we're left with this notion then that God, God loves us, Jesus loves us, but also the idea that we don't have to be perfectly good at waiting for God because Jesus did that for us too. So the Bible's not just saying, wait for God perfectly and then you'll be saved. That's the opposite, right, of what we've been saying this morning. It does invite us to wait because it's a grace-centered way to live, but it's also saying you and I don't wait that well for God in life. We, we're impatient. Has anybody been impatient before, ever? At any one moment of your life, right? We've all been impatient. We're constantly impatient. But Jesus, but Jesus did this for us when he experienced interposition from his own heavenly Father on the cross. He, again, we talked about how he waited, but he experienced interposition when he died for us. And so the invitation, I think, is believe in him Trust in how he waited on God for us. You know, in one sense, there's no more waiting for salvation, but then it invites us to wait for a second coming in the spirit of all of it so that we're saved by grace and we live by grace and we suffer by grace and we live our whole life as though we're in God's hands. Our lives are in God's hands. Think about it that way. Though we might profess and sing that our salvation's in God's, God's hands, Waiting and interposing days give us the ability to kind of remember that and practice that by remembering our whole life is in God's hands, whether we live or die, suffer or laugh. All right. Revelation 22, the end of the Bible says this. The spirit and the bride say, come, speaking to, to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. All right, a couple quick things here and we'll, we'll start to wrap up. But um, I want to close with this because I think that, well, first of all, uh, it's, I think kind of fascinating, maybe you share this, maybe you don't, but fascinating that the Bible ends this way. 
But the, the last thing we see in the Bible is the church saying, Jesus, come back. And then it ends with this wish of grace and love for the church, that people would live by grace. It's not a wish of the law or the Ten Commandments or doing more, but a wish that the idea that God saves us alone would be implanted in our minds and hearts, that we live our whole life by it, that it be with us. And it closes with that final um, amen. So, but second, I'll say this. There are a lot of categories of people here, I think, which is really cool. Do you notice that as it was being read? The Spirit of God, first of all, was mentioned. The bride is mentioned, which is the church. The one who hears is mentioned, which is all of us right now in this room and listening online because we're actively hearing, right, the gospel. So maybe those who aren't Christians yet as well could be in that category. The one who is thirsty is mentioned. So the one who is thirsty for love, thirsty for being loved by God, thirsty because he's tired of how the world beats him down and he, and he can't quench his own thirst. And so it's, I think it's this invitation to all who experience interposing days. Whatever category you fit in, we're not the Spirit of God, but the other categories we can find ourselves in. We're, we're, if you're a Christian, you are the bride. If you are thirsty, if you live in these interposing days, if you hear, say and invite Jesus to come back. Come, Lord Jesus. And then, then listen to his words. His, his final words here are, I am coming soon. Not come and find me, but I am coming to you. I'm coming back to save you like, like I was at the first, to die for you and, and to rise again. And so, <clears throat> I would say also in the spirit of reading Psalm 40, as though it's help you in prayer, I would say also, um, these are great things to remember and pray. If you, are, if you say these things from the heart, you're a Christian because it means you believe you believe the gospel. It means you want to see your Savior. It means you live by grace. If, if you live by the law, then you don't want this because you have work to do. Like, who wants to see Jesus if you have to have a pretty dang spotless life? No one wants this. But if you, want, if you believe you're saved by grace, you want this. Any day, come now. In my worst moments, come now. Because I'm saved by you, not by what I do. On my worst days, we want this. If we're truly saved, our worst days... Worst days, right? See how grace changes everything? On our worst days, we can't wait for this because we know we're justified and made righteous before God based on his work for us, based on him waiting on his Father, his interposition with the Father, his exile from his Father, his cursed hanging on that tree. That's how we're justified by his spilt bodily fluids. And so I would say in the spirit of reading Psalm 40, read this as a help in prayer as you wait on him. Notice that it is a mark of Christian existence, right? So to get back to the question, like part of the question is, how do we wrestle with this, which is a great, it's really hard. But part of the answer is, it is, it is part of what it means, not just to be human, but more than that, to be Christianly human. We wait, we kneel, we pray, we ask for him to come precisely because we know we don't save ourselves. Precisely because of that reason. It relates to it. It's a one-to-one -one correlative thing with it. Saved by grace, 
and waiting. Saved by what he does, not by the works of our hands at all, and being waiters on him to come back again. And, and, and that's why the more we know the gospel, the easier it becomes to, uh, to wait and to pray and to rely on him. So, it's not overly spiritualizing our suffering to say this. Like, again, if you're saying this from the heart, you're a believer. If, if the last word of your life and your beliefs and your experiences is like it is in the Bible, grace, that's a good thing. And so, um, I would say in the spirit of what this is saying here, but everything we've said, that <clears throat> let waiting point you to God. Let waiting point you to Jesus who waited on his Father on the cross for you. And he was promised to come back to end it all and to bring you and me home. And he promised that it will come soon. Isn't that good news as well? He said it. It will happen soon. And he never lies. Thank God. Let's pray for us.